people often talk about you know existence in space and time and so on and physical existence in a manner that suggests that that's the one that we really understand, but abstract existence is the problematic one. And my view is that this is exactly backwards, that actually physical existence is the one that's deeply mysterious. I mean, the more physics we learn, the more, the more strange physical objects are. I'm not even sure actually one can give any kind of sensible account of what it means to say that a particular thing exists physically. Whereas the existence of the empty set is something that we can seem to say something about what it means for such a thing to exist. So we can talk about, you know, instances of contradictory properties and it's the set of instances of contradictory, you know, the point I'm trying to make is that that explanation is just far more thorough in giving an account of what it would mean to say that the empty set exists than any kind of corresponding assertion or explanation of what it means to say that this cup is a physical object. Hello, my geeselings. It is Mother Goose, Robinson Earhart, here with the introduction to an absolute banger, uh, Robinson's podcast number 60. So my two guests on this episode are prior denizens of the Robinson's podcast universe, which has since split off actually into the Robinson's podcast multiverse, uh, but we'll get to that momentarily. So my two guests are Joel David Hampkins, who is the O'Hara Professor of Philosophy and Mathematics at the University of Notre Dame, uh, where he recently moved from Oxford. And Joel is a top-notch philosopher of mathematics, also one of the leading set theorists in the world and the reigning king of math overflow. And my second guest is Graham Priest, who is distinguished professor in the philosophy department at the CUNY Graduate Center. And Graham is also, I mean, one of the most widely cited influential philosophers of the past 50, 50 to 100 years or so. I was, I was looking at his publications a few days ago and I think he's written like 350 papers or more than that and has plenty of books and on all sorts of wide ranging topics. It's really uh, extraordinary. I, I imagine that there are few, if any, people in the philosophical world who have done so much good and wide ranging works. So this episode, we talk about two topics primarily which are the liar paradox and the set theoretic universe or multiverse. And my sister, who is a listener of the podcast, has pointed out that I really need to do a much better job of motivating the questions that these episodes consider in the introduction because I don't want these episodes to be appealing only to philosophers or mathematicians or highfalutin intellectuals, I guess. I'd like this to be appealing to a broader audience, but this is not really the episode for that because this episode is extremely technical. So what I would recommend is checking out J.C. Beale's article on the liar paradox on the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy and maybe Joan Begaria's. I'm not sure he's Spanish, so I'm not sure if it's Juan Begaria's article on set theory, 
in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. But at any rate, the liar paradox stems from Eubulides, who is my close friend and mentor, Heim Gaifman's favorite ancient philosopher, uh, about 2,500 years ago. And he had all sorts of paradoxes. Uh, I think the Sorides is attributed to Eubulides as well. But the, at least, I think the initial version of the paradox is you have a, a Cretan, a Cretan comes up or comes up to you and he says, all Cretans are liars. And the idea roughly is, what are we to make of a sentence that says of itself that it's false? And Graham has a very notable and important approach to this paradox. So that is the first topic we discuss and how answering or responding to this paradox raises questions of logical pluralism. So there are plenty of different logics. There are there intuitionistic logic, paraconsistent logic, classical logic, fuzzy logics. Um, anyway, and there's a question of whether or not one of these logics is the correct logic, or if all of the logics are equally valuable, and which we should choose in various situations. So that is, I'd say, the main point of discussion surrounding the liars paradox. And then we turn to the set theoretic multiverse, which is the contribution to the philosophy of mathematics that Joel is best known for. And the set theoretic multiverse clearly hinges on set theory. And as I mentioned, you should check out the article by Joan Vigaria on the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. But set theory is that branch of mathematical logic, of which there are four, uh, depending on who you ask, set theory, proof theory, uh, model theory, and recursion theory, that deals with the objects of mathematics, at least that's how I think about it, because all objects, numbers, triangles, uh, what have you, they can be construed as sets, which are just collections of objects. And set theory is of particular interest to philosophers of mathematics, I think, because largely of these ontological concerns, one, how set theory is the mathematical discipline par excellence for discussing questions of infinity, which is another major concern of the philosophers of mathematics. But there are also very important questions in the philosophy of mathematics that surround what I'll refer to as objectivity. Uh, so is there one correct answer to a certain problem. And Joel, I think one of the primary motivations of the set theoretic multiverse, believes that there is not just one answer, for example, to the question, is there an intermediate cardinality between the naturals and the reals? Uh, this question has different answers depending on the set theory in which you're operating. So in discussing this question, so the set theoretic multiverse then, is that there are sort of multiple universes of objects 
about which mathematics is concerned, uh, stands in opposition to the monist theory that is most closely associated, I think, with Gödel and Hugh Wooden and uh, Peter Kollner today. And so we discuss the tension between these two views. We discuss uh, the metaphysics of the multiverse. And then we discuss how all of this relates to the age-old question of whether or not mathematics is created or discovered. And even though that is a, a sort of trite question that everybody gets, it is a really deep and important question, and we actually have a really nice discussion about it. Now, some resources for background information I've already just met, mentioned, and you should also check out Joel's current project, which is the Book of Infinity, and it's an accessible text on paradoxes and the infinite, and he's made the very cool move of serializing it on Substack. So you can participate in its creation and weigh in through Twitter and read it chapter by chapter, and it's it's been a really cool project. Then you should also check out Joel's Twitter, his math overflow, his blog. And you can keep up with Graham on his website, grahampriest.net, though all of these links are in the description. Then the, the last things I'll mention are following me on Twitter, Instagram, all of these places. That's, that's very helpful. Uh, leaving reviews. I would like more eyes on this podcast and ears and uh, attuned to my guests as well. And then the last thing I'll mention is the Robinson's podcast multiverse, which has now branched in two directions. I have a second show called Robinson eats, uh, which is much less philosophically inclined though. There are, it, it has its philosophical moments in which I eat a pint of ice cream or something else, I guess every morning uh, in Palo Alto time. So maybe nine or 10. And I do that on Twitch also on YouTube, and I, I talk with whoever's there. And then I just purchased robinsonsfashionempire.com, and maybe I should have called it uh, Le Maison Robinson. Uh, but anyway, uh, I have a t-shirt for sale. I designed it. There's an R and a P for Robinson's podcast. And please don't buy it if, if you don't want to. Uh, you don't have to, but it's uh, a nice way of helping out with the uh, proliferation of the Robinson's podcast multiverse. And now without any further ado, I hope you love this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Joel and Grant. Graham, I know this is a uh, very old hat for you, but uh, based on the two of your mutual interests, I thought a nice place to start would be with the liar paradox. And since you, I mean, you both have your doctorates in mathematics, not philosophy. I'm curious about when it became such an important problem for you. Okay, that's easy. Um when I was a graduate student, I went to a conference. Um, it's the first conference I ever went to. And there was a talk by Moshe Makova on Gödel's theorem. Uh, and it centered around the question of 
how there can be things which we know to be true, which you can't prove. Okay. Now, obviously, there are all kinds of moves you make in that context. But I started to worry about the fact that we do seem to give certain arguments of a self-referential kind, which seem to um, break through any consistent axiomatic system. Um, and I started to think that through. Um, and that's when I started to think that an adequate foundation for mathematics should be power consistent. And then, of course, the connections between you know, the, 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 the original Gödel proof of his theorem and um, other self-referential constructions like the liar are obvious. Uh, and so that took me into the broader domain. Hmm. So it was uh, through mathematics that you came yeah, to the liar paradox. Yeah, it's through Gödel's theorems. Maybe you could walk us through just to start off for the audience members who aren't familiar with the liar paradox well um, has, just what it is it has many forms but let's let's just have one so the paradox goes back we think to eubulides about two and a half thousand years um who invented a number of paradoxes or discovered a number of paradoxes one of these was the liar and it, as a modern logician would formulate it it goes something like this Consider a sentence which says of itself that it's not true. Um, however, I mean, there's obviously some kind of self-reference there. You can you know, arrange that in many different ways, but let's suppose you've got a sentence that says of itself that it's not true. Okay, then prima facie, you reason like this. Um, it's either true or it isn't. If it's true, well, what it says is the case, so it's not true. If it's not true, well, that's what it says, so it's true. So if it's true, it isn't. If it isn't, it is. Um, so you've got something very puzzling on your hands and you know, modulo a few other principles. It's true and it isn't. So you've got a contradiction on your hands. Um, and the traditional response, by which I mean the response of most logicians until at least the second half of the 20th century, including the great medieval logicians, uh, was there's something wrong with the argument. And the name of the game is to figure out what, and moreover, more importantly, why. And uh, this hasn't been terribly successful, it must be said. Um, certainly if consensus is a mark of success, because there's still eight mine after mm -hmm. two and a half thousand years. So the dialectic move is, well, hey, there's nothing wrong with the argument. It's veridical, just establish its conclusion. Okay, um, that's only the start of an answer, though, because it means that you've got to have a central way of handling contradictions. And that's really where most of the action is in this solution. So how does Paris consistent logic help us solve the puzzle? And, I mean, why does it strike you as the natural or correct way of dealing with it? Well, um, it's the natural or correct way of dealing with it simply because um, you, you accept the argument at face value. Um, and that's not always the right thing to do with an argument, but uh, it often is. Uh, it, it's, you know, to use a, uh, some terminology from the philosophy of science, it saves the phenomena. Uh, and that's backed up in this case by the fact that other approaches have failed for the last 2,000 years. Okay. Um, why is a paraconsistent logic necessary? Well, because in um, 
so-called classical logic, that is the logic that was invented or discovered by Frege and Russell and company, um, a contradiction will imply everything. So you might think that some contradictions are true, like the Lyra paradox, but you'd be pretty crazy to think that every contradiction is true. So if you want to be a dilutheist about the Lyra paradox, you've got to reject that principle. And then you're dealing with, by definition, a paraconsistent logic. So, so let me push against let me push sure. against the earlier remark, Graham, that you made, which is that, okay, I, I think I understand your point of view on this. I mean, and I remember when I was uh, visiting at NYU and you and Hartree Field ran that seminar, and and it was a major theme of the seminar was about changing the logic in light of the paradoxes uh, arising with the liar and so on. And the conclusion, as far as I understand your point of view is that uh, we're, we're sort of forced to change the logic away from classical logic and to this paraconsistent logic in order to explain and understand the phenomenon of the liar paradox. Um, and, and, uh, and, and I'm completely amenable to that. But what I wonder is whether the solution has actually succeeded in helping mm -hmm. us to understand the liar paradox. I mean, what kind of resolution? I mean, if one is confused about the liar paradox, then the confusion seems to be based in the idea that, well, the sentence is true if and only if it's false. It can't be true. It can't be false. And so, so well, I think, every, yeah. So every, everyone, I think, uh, is is on board with the paradoxical nature of the liar sentence. Um, and then to have a logic that just says, well, it's both true and false, how, how does it solve the paradox? I mean, what, it just is sort of drawing a line underneath the paradox. I mean, this is another way of looking at it, which makes a lot of sense to me, which, which is that the paraconsistent solution hasn't actually given us any explanation of how it could be that there are true contradictions. Okay, so what, but rather what, is just kind of pointing it out that, okay, okay there are these two contradictions. What do you want from an explanation? Well, I would want to to come to understand what's, you know, what maybe there's some deeper phenomenon going on, or maybe there's some related phenomenon, or maybe there's some kind of conceptual error that's happening in forming the sentence. Yeah, I'm conceptual errors because the argument's critical, but I do think there's a deeper explanation, um, namely um, what what produces the paradox is this kind of structural mechanism you have for tearing through boundaries um, and once you see how you, we have these paradoxes you're always going to get paradox um, when you have an absolute boundary a totality rule set totality rule truth whatever um, exactly and but it, i would say that there are sort of explanations of those phenomena for example i mean there's sort of standard set theoretic resolution of the general comprehension principle sure. I take well, to be a kind of explanation of why the general comprehension principle is is a logical error. Sure. And, and if you're going to say, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 I didn't want to cut you off. So, I mean, for example, in the case of the liar sentence, then the, this, the underlying commitments that are involved in formulating the liar sentence are about the nature of truth and the theory of truth and, 
you know, what does it mean to, to make a statement? Uh, I mean, to say that a statement is, is true. And, and it seems like we can say quite a lot about, you know, what we expect from a theory of truth or what it, it's like. Of course, it would start not in this self-referential kind of self-applicable truth predicate, but rather in what I would view as a kind of much easier case where you have some kind of base language. Maybe it's a formal language in mathematics, a first order logic kind of language or something. And then you want to make truth assertions about assertions in that language. So it's it's not self-applicable, but only applying to the lower one. And this kind of case seems completely unproblematic. I mean, if I have a, say, some kind of model or interpretation of this base language, and then it, I, you know, to say that phi is true is just to assert phi. I mean, it's one can be completely deflationist about it and and uh, accept the T scheme uh, in, in, in this way. But of course, we're only getting truth about the assertions that are sort of at a lower level for the base language. But you know, you can iterate it because once you introduce a truth predicate like that, then you can have another truth predicate for the truth assertions that you were just previously making. And so you're talking about truth about truth and then truth about truth about truth and so on. And of course, there's a kind of transfinite iterative hierarchy of truth assertions to be made there. And those, you know, that way of talking about the nature of truth and what it's like to have a truth predicate seems relatively unproblematic because one can just define any truth assertion, you know, by induction on the hierarchy itself, ultimately reducing down to assertions made in the base language. Okay, but the liar sentence, of course, isn't like that because it's not part of this well-founded hierarchy, but it's having this kind of self-referential thing, and and so uh, and and so it's not it's not so clear to me what the concept of truth is that is this self-referential kind of truth. I understand very well truth assertions made when they're part of this sort of even very tall, well-founded hierarchy. You know, that's what I'm thinking of as my theory of what truth is like. And so I question whether the liar, you know, the liar sentence is using a concept of truth that isn't like that. And it seems to be something very like the mistake of the general comprehension principle. And and both in both cases, they're so easily refuted in one line. Um, that it makes me think it's simply a kind of logical error in forming the sentence in the first place. So this is the kind of explanation that the kind of alternative explanation that isn't as radical as changing the underlying logic, but it does seem to lead to some insight about the nature of truth. You can formulate the Tarski recursion and the disquotational criteria and so on. And all of those things seem to, to, to be helping us to understand what the nature of truth is like in a way that the pair consistent solution of the liar paradox doesn't seem to have those features. Okay, so there are lots of things there. Um, let, let me say three things by way of comment. Okay. The first is um, we're now in the domain of different solutions to the liar, okay? And of course, there are many, and each of those has to be addressed on its merits. And we can discuss what you've suggested. Um, if you want, I mean, I'm not sure how profitable it is to go out on that route over this medium, but we, we could do that. The second is that, of course, it's not in question that um, you can construct simple, consistent formal languages. Of course you can. Um, but the question is, as you said, 
what understanding it gives you of what's going on. Okay. Now, um, the third thing is that you asked me what solution, what explanation comes out of the, the apparent consistent solution. Um, and I was sort of gesturing at a solution I've given elsewhere, which is to do with the enclosure schema. Um, I'm sorry, say it again. Yeah, the enclosure schema. It's a mechanism for explaining why these um, paradoxes occur at boundary situations. Okay. Um, so that's where I would look to answer. I'm sorry, your what do you mean by boundary situations? Well, um, in, in this context, what I intended was when you've got the totality of all truths, totality of all ordinals, totality of all countable ordinals, a totality of all sets, a totality of all categories, these sort of mega totalities. Well, the totality of all countable ordinals, of course, is not a mega totality, but that, you know, whenever you've got a totality of this kind and a mechanism which tears through boundaries, um, you're going to get this kind of um, a contradiction at the limit of the totality. So, so that's what I had in mind. Um, um, we can discuss that if you like. Um, yeah, it's sort of what I was alluding to, actually. I mean, when well, I was referring to the analog of the general comprehension, which is, of course, about the totality of all sets and forming sets from that totality. Yeah. And well, okay. So, but I mean, the solution that you... I mean, you said two things. The first is that the real solution is there's no totality, right? But then earlier on, you gestured at something else, namely the notion of truth is vague, and we have different ways of articulating it. Now, those two thoughts are different thoughts, and there's a question of which of those you might want to pin your colors to to be pursued as. Right. I don't know if I would say truth is vague, rather. Yeah, I was curious about that. If um, you, if that is I mean, my, my view is something like uh, one can try to be clear about what does it mean to say that a statement phi is true? And, and, and one way of understanding that, I mean, one, one can just take the T scheme of T is, you know, phi is true if not phi. And, and this is the kind of logic that's underlying, I think, your analysis of the liar paradox. Sure. But a, a different way, uh, you know, so maybe, I don't know, uh, I mean, I would view that kind of interpretation as just completely deflationist, the T scheme of T phi, if and only a phi. And whenever we make a truth assertion, uh, whenever we say that an assertion is true, what we mean is that that assertion is the case. Okay, but it's, it's it, you know, the, the liar paradox somehow doesn't, uh, the liar sentence doesn't, you know, is, is is leading to contradiction precisely because of that scheme, right? But another way, I mean, to understand what it means to have a truth assertion is to formulate what what it means to have a theory of truth and to talk about things like the Tarski disquotational schema and the recursive definition of truth and and that understanding of what truth is like is leading to this well-founded hierarchy that I was describing earlier. And, and on that concept of truth, there just is no lawyer sentence. You can't, it, it's, it's kind of illusion that it's expressing a proposition because uh, it's using this self-applicable thing, yeah. which this well-founded hierarchy doesn't allow. And so one hasn't, I mean, one can say, well, 
we have a pre-reflective concept of truth or something, and it's going to obey the T schema, and that's the kind of logic that one is doing when analyzing liar paradox. But I would want to have an explanation of what is that kind of truth like. And, well, that, and that, that's easy. I mean, it's it's a notion of truth that satisfies the T schema. Now, that that is endorsed. That that you could be a deflationist about that, but of course you don't have to be. I mean, a lot of theories of truth will satisfy that condition. Um, right. You can fill in the details as you like. I see. Um, I mean, that, that the T scheme actually goes back to Aristotle, okay? And his theory, he's certainly no deflationist about truth. But, but anyway, I mean, again, um, you seem to be, to me, now with uh, to have gestured at two thoughts here. One is that um, there are different notions of truth, um, and for some the theory, some of the paradox is going to rise, and for some it's not. And that that may be true, okay. But there's another thought, namely that, um, that there's no theory of truth according to which the T scheme is correct. Um, I mean, one could arguably take the liar paradox as a proof of that. I mean, of course, uh, yeah, you know, this is in classical logic, basically. It's a reductio, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and this is why, I I mean, if I'm understanding your approach, is that you want the T-schema and the liar paradox, therefore, leads you to these true contradictions just on its face. And, and this is why you have pair consistency. Is, is that? Yeah. Look, I mean, it's not just that I want it. I mean, it's prima facie true, and anyone would endorse it, but were it not for the paradoxes, right? Um, and everybody thinks it's prima facie true, otherwise there wouldn't be a paradox. When, so what, when you say it's prima facie true, what do you mean? That the, the contradiction is true? Or, no, mean, the teaching. Oh, I see. Right. Okay. Now, you can say that the, prima, the appearances are not veridical. That, that's a very standard move, of course. Um, but as you know, uh, if you make that move, then there are you know other paradoxes that lurk in the wings. Um, I mean, you said that um, it doesn't express a proposition, or it's not well formed, or etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But there are these right. paradoxes which say, well, consider the sentence. This sentence uh, is um, either not well formed or false, and then you're back with the contradiction. So, no, 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 because that one also is not expressing a proposition. I mean, if, because it's, it, it's using it to be predicated in a self-applicable manner, which is invalid. It's, but you've just it's said that it's not true. You said that's not well-formed. So I presume you think you're saying something true when you say that. I, I'm, I'm, I mean, the view, right, is that the... The, there is no proposition expressed by the Lyra paradox or any of those revenge ones, okay. and they all suffer the same flaw of self-applicable proposition. Okay. What, and I, what's that? Well, if there's no proposition uh, there, then either it's false or there's no proposition. So if you think it's no proposition, you should think it's true. I mean, th this is. It was in that proposition, that disjunction, that seeming proposition that was a disjunction, it also has the same status, right? I mean, of course, that's the line that one is going to take. Okay, so you just said something that you think is not true, namely that it expresses no proposition. The, this assertion, you know, the, the assertion 
which I can put quotes around and talk about it as as something that to be uttered, right, is uh, is on this view not meaningful, and and neither are the revenge ones for the same reason because they're employing the concept of truth in a self-applicable manner, but we don't have any such theory of self-applicable truth predicates. But look, I mean, you said that proposition, that, that sentence does not express a proposition, okay? Um, so, and you presumably you think that what you said was true, in which case you seem to be in this extended paradox. Um, I, I don't see that. I mean, uh, well, maybe at this stage we need a blackboard. Um, <laughs> um, John, let, let me come back to something actually that we mentioned earlier, which is this deflationary to whether one is deflationary about truth. I mean, sort of the T schema can be seen. I think sort of. Uh, Joel, can you say what it means to be deflationary about truth? Oh, I, I mean, just something ordinary. I mean, to be deflationary about a, a topic means to basically explain away instances of those topics in terms of other possibly more primitive notions or something. So to be a deflationist sure. about truth means that truth assertions are just reducing to assertions that don't involve the concept of truth. So, so we're we've deflated the concept and by, in a sense, by reducing it to other things that don't involve truth. And the T schema, which is the assertion phi is true if and only if phi, is, is sort of explicit, every instance of the T schema is, is asserting a deflation, you know, an instance of deflationary uh, uh, approach to truth. So, so my view about this sort of deflationist uh, part of it is that Individual truth assertions. One can be deflationist about individual truth assertions because they can always be eliminated by the T schema. But that doesn't mean I'm a deflationist about truth altogether because to have a truth predicate, we know, I mean, mathematically, we know it's the logical complexity is much higher. For example, if you have piano arithmetic together with a truth predicate, even this kind of well-founded kind of truth predicate that I was talking about earlier, where we have only truth for the arithmetic assertions and not for assertions involving truth. Um, this implies con PA. It's strictly stronger in consistency strength if it's an inductive truth predicate. Uh, and so, so, so having a concept of truth, I'm not a deflationist about that, to have the whole predicate as a completed totality and to be able to reason with the concept of truth in that sense uh, is definitely stronger than not having any concept of truth. So I'm not a deflationist about truth in that sense. What I am a deflationist about is truth assertions made, you know, sort of one-off truth assertions. To say fee is true, it just is to assert fee, and I can agree that. So I like to distinguish between uh, sort of individual truth assertions and having a truth predicate, um, which seems a much stronger thing. Now, Joel, is your preferred way of solving the puzzle then just to say, just to dismiss it and say that there is no proposition expressed by the liar paradox and just you just don't let it get off the ground? Right. So, I mean, I don't know if I have a, a preferred way. And actually, I've talked with Graham and Hartree and so on enough that uh, to have the experience of whatever you say about the liar paradox, either Graham or Hartree is going to trap you in some <laughs> uh, revenge situation. And so I really hesitate to um, 
to make any definite statement about uh, the higher paradox. Rather, my approach, though, to answer your question, is uh, um, uh, to talk about the nature of truth and what it means to have a truth predicate. And my preferred kind of explanation of that is always to talk about these well-founded cases, which are, after all, the main uses of the concept of truth if one looks you know beyond the liar paradox when are we making truth assertions uh, when are we using the concept of truth in mathematics or even in everyday usage it's almost never in those self-referential self-applicable situations but rather it's almost always in this kind of well-founded case and that's the case of truth that we really need to analyze. And I think we have a very satisfactory analysis of, of the nature of truth for those kinds of sentences that appear in that well-founded iterated um, truth predicate situation. And the, the, what I think about the liar sentence is that it's something akin to ignoring this underlying well-founded hierarchy which is exactly similar to the way that the Russell paradox ignores, that general comprehension principle ignores the underlying hierarchy of uh, the hierarchy of sets. And, you know, by presuming that you can form the set of all sets with, with any given property and that the sort of expectation that we should always be able to make truth assertions about any assertion, including ones that uh, already involve the concept of truth. And, and so, so I'm deeply suspicious of the liar sentence because I view it as sort of violating what I understand to be an inherent underlying part of what truth is like. And now, as Graham mentioned, I mean, Eubulides came up with this paradox maybe 2,500 years ago, and people have been talking about it ever since, and many people like Graham treating it very seriously. So do you then just appeal maybe to something about human psychology, like an error in our thinking that uh, makes it seem so compelling, but really it just doesn't get off the ground. It's just a fault of natural language. I see. I don't know if I'm not going to be able to say something definite. Um, I view it as a kind of illusion that it, whether it's expressing something or not. And the, okay. the proof that it's an illusion is the contradiction that we can prove from it. If you take it at you know face value, then you're getting this contradiction. And and to make the move as Graham does, which I understand is very tempting and, and seems quite reasonable, but I, I I wonder if it has explained the illusion or if it is just accepting the illusion without actually giving me a better understanding of how it could be that there are true contradictions. And I think uh, Hartree is going to be on the show relatively soon, okay. mainly to talk about mathematical fictionalism. But Graham, does does he have the same views as you do on the liar no. paradox? So what, we both disagree with each other and with Joel. Um, <laughs> okay, great. Joel is, Maybe it should have been a four-way podcast. What is it? Is the theorem of philosophy in general that any two philosophers are disagreeing? Michael Harris, the the number theorist at Columbia, was on one of my first episodes, and he said something to the effect of, "He he understands that philosophy." progresses just by philosophers trying to like smash each other's work the best they can. 
<laughs> Joel subscribes to classical logic, which is a logic invented by Frege and Russell um, around the turn of the 20th century. Okay? Logical theories have been changing for two and a half thousand years. That happens to be the kind of pattern on which many people subscribe to, and Joel does too. Okay? Um, both Hartree and I do not subscribe to that account of logic, uh, but we don't subscribe to the same kinds of logic. I subscribe to a logic in which the inference from a contradiction to an arbitrary conclusion fails. Hartree subscribes to logic in which the principle excluded middle fails. Um, so you've got three possible solutions to lie here. One is to uh, indulge classical logic and then fiddle around with the notion of truth. One is to accept um, the T schema and then fiddle around with the logic. Uh, those are three very standard solutions to the paradox. And you'll find them all in the literature. And Graham, I, I am curious because and maybe I'll be misquoting or misremembering, but I recall from our last conversation that you said something something to the effect of you're sympathetic with there being one true logic, and it is classical logic. It's the logic that is true of the world. Uh, and maybe, so you're, you're furrowing your brow, so it seems like maybe I am misremembering something you said, but I was going to ask if I'm misremembering what you said, or if I am remembering what you said, then why does it strike you in this case as natural to deal with the liar paradox by reasoning paraconsistently? Um, look, I may well have said I think there's one true logic. Okay, I certainly okay. didn't say it was classical logic. Okay, I, I just so that's where I consistent logic. Okay, great. And then, Joel, an another question for you in your upcoming book, the Book of Infinity, which we we talked about more in our last episode. There's a, a chapter, I think, on infinite liars. Oh, and yes. This was a reference that a to the Yablo paradox, which I'm sure Graham knows very well. It's a kind of approach. I mean, it's a version of the liar paradox that's trying to avoid the use of self-reference. Right? The liar paradox is making this self-referential assertion. And sometimes people say, well, maybe that's the source of the difficulty. I mean, my attitude about self-reference is that there's nothing inherently bad about self-reference. And in fact, we can we can prove using Gödel's fixed point lemma idea and Carnap's ideas on those fixed points that self-reference is inherently a part of all of our mathematical theories. And it's not especially problematic or, or worrisome. So I don't find anything worrisome about the self-reference part of the liar paradox. But the Yablo paradox goes like this. You have infinitely many statements and each one of them says that all of the later statements are false. Well, None of them is like referring that. to themselves, right? Because they're only referring to the later ones. So this is avoiding nothing, nothing refers to the first one. But let's just analyze it. So each statement says all the later ones are false. All the ones that come after are false. But then if one of them were true, then the next one, then all the later ones are false, but then the next ones should should also be true because what they assert is the case. So, so, so if one of them is true, then all the later ones are false, but then they should all be true, right? So, so therefore, none of them can be true. Uh, but then they should all be true because of what they assert. And so one, it's basically the same as the liar paradox reasoning. But it's with these statements that are, in some sense, I mean, arguably not self-referential. 
I mean, I would argue actually they are self-referential because each one of them is referring to the other. So each one of them has to have, you know, the capacity of making this reference to the later sentences. So this it's really just kind of one sentence with a with a parameter, you know, that's changing as you go. And they're all talking about that sentence with that parameter and they're changing the parameter. So there's a sense in which it is still self-referential because there it's just one formula with a variable that's changing and the formula is asserting something about that very same formula again at the later instances of that variable which is still a kind of self-reference so i'm I not sure what john, you're... And I, john and i are pretty much on the same page about this um okay. i mean trim differentiate doesn't use self-reference but when you start to look at it carefully and how you actually formulate it um things which are distinctly self-referential start to appear um yeah so this this is a contentious issue in the literature um sure what's at issue is exactly how you characterize self-reference which is anything but obvious but um, I mean, I, I think when you know, push comes to shove, Joel and I agree on what he's just said. Yeah. Well, okay, I, so you. I mean, I assume he agrees on what he's just said. <laughs> <laughs> so Yablo's paradox uh, requires then a different treatment for you, Graham, than the the standard liar paradox. Not exactly. Um, no, wouldn't you say that it's that they're each instance is a true contradiction or i mean what what i would assume that would be your analysis of it but please tell us um so it may depend on how you set the thing up okay but if you set it up in the way you did uh essentially you've got a bunch of in, an infinite bunch of sentences uh of uh but only one proposition expressed by all of them. So you're back to the liar. I see. Right. So you would say it's somehow equivalent to the liar. Well, I think it might depend on how you set it up. Um, I think there was a math overflow question about this once, because yeah, you can actually produce sort of instances of the, using the Carnot fixed point, you can produce a first order formula, you know, with a T predicate that's somehow equivalent. It's expressing this Yablo thing. Yeah. And um, then in that case, you can prove it's just every single one of them is equivalent to the liar paradox. This is true, but there are different ways of settling up, setting it up. I mean, for example, one is by um, Roy Sorensen, and he says, hey, imagine you've got this infinite line of people, right? And each person says, um, that is a sentence. Um, And each sentence is of a form, so that give give more names, right? Um, there's person one, person two, person three, and person n says um, the sentence that person n plus one says is false. Now, um, in oh, that, so just making to the next one, so each of them correct. says the next guy's okay. Correct, correct. Um, and then it doesn't look like the same sentence or the same proposition because each of them refers to a different person. Right. Um, so as I say, you, you can set the thing up in different ways, and it may not. You may want to say slightly different things about each context, each setting up, as it were. Right. That's interesting. 
I would want to know, you know, is there a sort of consistent solution of truth assignments to these sentences that that is going to fulfill the T schema and so on? And and okay. and I guess if it really is paradoxical, then the answer would be there's no consistent yeah. way of, I, I of assigning right. the truth. Uh, I think any way you line it up, you're gonna you're gonna hit the possibility of power consistency. Right. Yeah. I see. But of course, there are the ways. There are the other ways out of it too. So, I mean, I, I, I don't think that the Yablo paradox actually brings anything new to the table. Um, it might appear to, but when you start to examine it in detail, I think we're in very familiar territory here. And and I, I guess that's what one of the things we agree on. Hmm. Now, uh, stepping back, I guess to broader questions at issue here. Joel, what for you are the important stakes here surrounding this switch in logic? Why are you so committing so committed to retaining classical logic and avoiding going to paraconsistency? Oh I see. Right. So I'm totally open to changing the logic. I mean uh I don't feel that I'm no. You just don't think it's the appropriate treatment I, here. I just haven't been convinced. And uh, I mean, if if I felt that the new logic was helping me to understand the phenomenon better, and if I was getting insight from by considering a phenomenon, a mathematical phenomenon, or you know, a philosophical phenomenon in a different logic, then then I would be perfectly willing. And um, uh, I mean, that, this is sort of the criteria, you know, what is the criteria by which one chooses the logic? And, and, and my way of thinking about it is that, look, classical logic has been so enormously successful and clarifying in helping us to understand how to reason in, say, mathematical situations. Let me just stick mainly with mathematical kind of situations. And... Um, and so then the question would be, well, are there situations where you would want to change the logic, say, to intuitionistic logic or constructive logic or paraconsistent logic or, or something like that? And there are some situations. For example, there are communities of constructive mathematicians who are looking at topos theory and univalent foundations as a new big thing. And in, in those some of those toposes, the internal logic is not obeying classical logic. It's It's obeying intuitionistic logic. And so the, the practitioners, uh, the constructive mathematicians who are who are working and studying these toposes are using uh, intuitionistic logic and getting quite good at it. And, and there are big communities of people doing that. Um, and, uh, and so, okay, so from that point of view, um, it seems perfectly reasonable to me for them to be working in intuitionistic logic in, in those settings because the intuitionistic logic is leading, is providing insights in how to reason about the uh, truths of those mathematical structures. So I don't happen to work with those kind of topuses very much. And you know the kinds of mathematical questions that I'm interested in generally don't give rise to those kind of mathematical structures or universes in which the intuitionistic logic is appropriate. And so uh, so it, it hasn't happened to me yet that 
I've come to understand a mathematical phenomenon better by thinking in terms of intuitionistic logic instead of classical logic. And, but, you know, I'm, I'm open-minded about it, I think, I hope I am. I mean, uh, and so I try to be, uh, maybe it will happen. And, and, um, and I guess I feel similarly about the pair consistent logic. I mean, uh, if I felt that it was, you know, providing new insight of something uh, that I wanted to understand, then, then I'm perfectly willing. I mean, there's another related thing, which is, okay, the, the sort of typical view of the comparison between intuitionistic logic and classical logic <clears throat> is that intuitionistic logic is viewed as a, uh, as a, a, a part, a sub-logic, in a sense, of classical logic, weaker, strictly weaker, because it's uh, it doesn't have law of excluded middle, for example. And, but isn't that not true? But hang on, let me just get to this point, which is right. exactly that. Namely that classical logic is embeddable into intuitionistic logic by, for example, the double negation translation. So any assertion in classical logic, we can make a kind of translation of it by putting in not-nots at every level hereditarily into the statement. And then the, uh, the, the corresponding classical reasoning translates into something that's intuitionistically valid, but it's not with the same statement, it's with this translated statement. Yeah? So for a memory statement phi, you can make this double negation translation. Let's call it, it's not just not not phi, but it's not not phi, and then not not stuck also hereditarily inside phi at every level, right? That's the translation. And it's a translation that the classical logician thinks is totally fine, right? Because saying not not for a cl in classical logic is, is to not do anything. And, and so, so the classical person, the classical logic person agrees that the, the translated version is expressing the same content, the same semantic meaning. And yet, because of the double negation translation, then when reasoning about those translated statements, the intuitionistic logic can prove exactly the same things about those translated statements. And therefore, what I'm trying to say is, is that uh, one can view intuitionistic logic as an enlargement of classical logic because it contains this perfect interpreted copy of classical logic by the double negation translation, and yet it also has more. And so the point is that the assertions of intuitionistic logic, not all of them are translations of classical logic, because not every assertion has this double negation form. And so it's a way of thinking about intuitionistic logic as an extension of classical logic rather than as a reduction of classical logic. And, and I find that perspective extremely interesting because in a sense, intuitionistic logic is more powerful than classical logic because of that. And, and you can't translate the other way. I think this is proved. There's no way of translating from intuitionistic logic to classical logic. And so in that sense, intuitionistic logic is strictly stronger than classical logic um, if you are willing to make these translations. And I wonder, Graham, do you know anything about whether there's such a similar phenomenon for paraconsistent logic? Or uh, can, can we, I'm not quite sure how to think about the paraconsistent case in, in that respect, I mean, with respect to that phenomenon. 
Do you know of anything like that? Well, um, let, let's distinguish between power consistent logic and power consistent mathematics. And then let me just say, of course, once you've got any logic, there are myriads of ways of translating it into other logics. There are all kinds of translation results at the level of first order logics. And, and you can certainly find these translations. The situation is messier when it comes to power consistent mathematics. Um, and um, we know that there are lots of inconsistent theories which require um, a power consistent logic, otherwise, all held Wexler's. And it's not so clear that those can be translated into something that's classically kosher. Um, again, we hit the problem that you've kind of alluded to of what is a legitimate translation and what's just playing the symbols. Okay. And that's you know something that's um, a feature of some of the literature in philosophical logic in the last 20 years. So Joel, what you just said uh, with regard to switching logics, I found um, very helpful. And I'm wondering if it's pointing to a salient difference between your two views on logic. And I just want to make sure that I have it right. So on the one hand, Joel, you pointed to insight and fruit, fruitfulness as uh, criteria maybe for selecting which logic to work with, whether it will help with, say, mathematical reasoning or whether it will shed light on the liar paradox. But Graham, in expressing sympathy for the view that there's one true logic, uh, paraconsistent logic, that strikes me as some sort of maybe even like a metaphysical thesis about logic, whereas Joel's view is more instrumental. I mean, logic is a, is a way of reasoning. It, maybe it's, it's deflationary in a way about what logic is. And I wonder if, if I'm making sort of an apt observation or if I'm misconstruing either of your views here. Well, I'm not entirely sure what your view is about these things, Joel. Um, um, what I thought I heard, but maybe I'm wrong, is some kind of pluralist position. You know, there are lots of good logics and you just choose whichever you want that you feel is correct. Um, am, am I mishearing? No, I, I mean, of course I am a pluralist about these things, but what I was expressing before is that um, uh, there are communities of mathematicians who are using constructive mathematics and intuitionistic mathematics and so on, and even some paraconsistent mathematics. And, um, and, and personally, I haven't had the experience of coming to some mathematical insight by, by weakening my logic. And the questions in which I have been interested uh, don't seem to be uh, uh, benefiting from these, this kind of change in the logic. Um, and so I don't know if that makes me a pluralist or a singularist, I'm not sure. About the logic. I mean, well, in one sense, yes, in another sense, not necessarily. Um, okay. I mean, I, I, I mean, this takes us to the question of mathemat mathematical pluralism, right? Um, and I'm inclined to think there are intuitionist structures, paraconsistent structures, classical structures, um, which all have mathematical interests. 
And of course, if you're reasoning about an intuitionist structure, use intuitionist logic and so on. Um, so I think we're on the same page there. Yes. Um, but um, reasoning about truth in a structure or what preserves truth in a structure is, of course, not the same as reasoning about what preserves truth simply to... Let, uh, that's not a rather clumsy way of putting it. Let me rephrase that. If you're reasoning about a structure, you want to use a kind of inference that preserves truth in that structure. But normally when we reason, we're not reasoning about truth in a structure in any obvious sense. And then we're reasoning about what preserves truth simply to. Um, now, some people have problematized this distinction, like Stuart Shapiro, but I think it's a pretty good distinction. So I think you can be a, um, a, plural, a mathematical pluralist without being a logical pluralist. Um, so, but I mean, this so, puts mathematical pluralism, I guess, squarely on our agenda for today. Yeah, and, and that's where I would like to go after this, but I want to clarify then for you, Graham. So I guess this is bringing metaphysics into the picture, but um, is this a correct interpretation of your views that paraconsistent, paraconsistent logic is the logic of our world, but we should be reasoning about other possible worlds, perhaps, or we have license to reason about other possible worlds, say, if we want to construe mathematical structures as worlds or something like that with other logics. You can put it that way if you like. I mean, it's sort of, that makes it really heavy duty metaphysics and talk about worlds and yeah. so on. Um, um, yeah, look, generally speaking, I'm happy to go along with that, but I don't, um, I don't think a logical monist is essentially committed to this heavy-duty metaphysical stuff. I think that's a different part of the story. Okay. I mean, I don't, I, right, Frank, but... Frank was obviously a logical monist, right? Uh, he had a very different... Who did you say? Frege was Frege. a logical monist, and I don't think he would have bought into this sort of the kind of metaphysical story you're telling. He had his own metaphysical story. Okay. Well, maybe it would be a good time then to turn to uh, Joel's 2012 paper, The Set Theoretic Multiverse, and in which you introduced the multiverse view of set theory. And I'm not alone, even in this conversation, in thinking of this as a, a groundbreaking paper, uh, because when I was thinking about PhD programs a few years ago, and I talked to Graham about what I should write about, I mean, his immediate suggestion was that I take a look at your paper. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah. <laughs> and so what, at, at first blush, uh, is the multiverse view of set theory? Right. So the multiverse view of set theory, I want to distinguish it sharply, you know, sort of set theoretic pluralism, which is what the paper is about, from logical pluralism, which is a topic that is much more the kind of thing that Graham is working on and J.C. Beale and... Uh, and many others, Greg Restall and so on. So it, it's not really the same thing. Um, and it, it has its origins in different places. So as far as set theoretic pluralism is concerned, um, it arose for me when I was a graduate student in Berkeley. I worked with Hugh Wooden and Solovey was there and so on in uh, you know, a big logic group in Berkeley and, and uh, set theorists working there. Um, 
And the, the sort of overriding philosophical view held by those researchers was very strongly monist Platonism. I mean, and uh, for example, when, you know, the continuum hypothesis is known to be independent and it was known by them to be independent, of course, but the attitude was that, well, nevertheless, there's an answer to the question of whether the continuum hypothesis is true or not, and we're going to try to figure out which it is. And, and, uh, and to, to, so, okay, so that was when I was a young, a young in, in Berkeley. And, um, but it, somehow I was always kind of unhappy with that attitude about it because meanwhile the 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 tools that set theory has developed had developed over the you know last fifty years of the twentieth century were all about building various set theoretic worlds, basically forcing inner models, ultra powers, definable inner models, and so on. We had all these tools basically for building models of set theory, alternative models of set theory, in which the continuum hypothesis was true or false or where it was false, but some other things happened and so on. And, and basically almost every paper in set theory, almost every published paper is, is building a model of set theory in order to show that a certain combination of statements is consistent. And, and, or, or could be the case, which is another way of, of describing what they were doing. And so it seemed like the most natural way to understand what the tools were doing is, is model building, universe building, giving us these alternative, showing us how set theory could be different than we thought. And and furthermore, I mean, when you when you study forcing a lot, at first, you know, you have this sort of countable transitive model understanding of, of set theory, and it's easier to be a kind of Platonist about set theoretic truth if you think that the forcing technique is only about building these sort of fake models. But at a certain point, you realize, you recognize that it, it makes sense to formalize the theory as forcing over V, the universe, the whole universe. And talking about forcing extensions of V, and and people started writing this explicitly in papers, talking about V of G and so on, V of G of H. You know, there is a forcing extension of the universe with certain features and so on. And that way of talking just invites explicitly this multiverse way of thinking. And 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 to right. So to my way of of uh, viewing the matter, it seemed like. Uh, what we were doing was exploring the space of set theoretic possibility, which uh, was explicitly pluralist, and that we shouldn't expect to get an answer to CH, to the continuum hypothesis question, a, a single definite answer. But rather, we already understand in a quite deep way how it could be that CH fails or that it's true. And, and furthermore, this because because our understanding of the forcing extensions is so strong and deep, it's not just that we know the continuum hypothesis is logically independent and there's no proof either way. It's not that's not what the nature of our knowledge is like. The nature of our knowledge is like give it you give me any set theoretic world, then I can from that world construct another world which has a different answer to the CH question. And and it's it's <clears throat> to say, well, there's a single definite answer to CH is, I think, in my uh, in my book, 
or in my paper, I say it's like someone saying um, only Brooklyn exists, but I already know about Manhattan and Queens. And, and so, you know, I've been to these other universes in which CH fails and in which it holds. And I understand that actually the universes in which CH fails are kind of dense in the space of all universes because of this forcing connection, you can move from one to the other in a way where the former one has kind of access by means of the forcing relation to those other worlds. And so, uh, so it, it, it seems, it seems to me much more natural to discuss the, the forcing extension seemed perfectly set theoretic and acceptable. And so, uh, it, so this is explicitly pluralist. And, and um, I had a really hard time though. I think I mentioned this in my last discussion with you, Robinson. I had a really hard time uh, sort of coming out to uh, Hugh Woodward. Uh, yeah, I remember you, you mentioned yes. giving this, was it at NYU? It was at NYU, there was a conference organized at NYU about mathematical pluralism and so on, and it was about this issue. So Wooden was there and uh, many philosophers of mathematics were there. And um, and I, I gave my, that's when I first started speaking publicly about this sort of pluralist conception. And uh, and I was sort of, I was a nervous wreck before that, but everything went fine. And so from that time, uh, now I've been talking about pluralism for 20 years or whatever it's been, and so I'm glad I, uh, I'm glad I did it. So I don't know if that answers your question or not. Oh, it certainly does. And Graham, I'm gonna come to ex uno pluris in a couple of minutes, but of course, always feel free to jump in. But um, Joel, just before we, I guess, talk about the view in more detail, it's been almost. 11 years since the paper came out. Has your view changed in any substantive ways since then? Well, I'm still strongly committed to this pluralist conception. And I guess my view has become more refined a little bit because I recognize that actually, well, there's different kinds of pluralism even in the philosophy of set theory. For example, one can be a monist sort of all the way up, you know, about all mathematical truth about the entire set theoretic universe. There's one true set theoretic universe in which all set theoretic questions are have a definitive truth value. This is the view of the, the, the sort of hardcore monist view. And therefore, if mathematics is interpreted in set theory, which is a consequence of set theoretic foundationalism, uh, then one can sort of extrapolate this perspective also to mathematics generally that there would be correct answers to any given mathematical question. Um, okay, so then there's a little bit softer view, which is something like Pfefferman's view, where he's a monist about arithmetic. He thinks arithmetic statements have definitive answers, um, but he's suspicious once you go up, sort of, you know, you take the power set, sets of integers. Okay, sets of sets of integers is definitely in uh, this sort of vaguer realm. And that's where questions like the continuum hypothesis are. And so he wants to say the continuum hypothesis is a vague assertion um, because we don't have a good enough understanding of what it would mean to have the set of all sets of natural numbers. And um, okay, so it's this sort of hybrid of pluralism and monism. It's sort of monist about arithmetic and pluralist about uh, higher set theory. Um, 
And then there's uh, what Peter Kohner calls the radical pluralist view, which is what my view basically is. It, I'm a pluralist also about arithmetic. I think that when we, you know, it's very strong intuition that people have about the definiteness of arithmetic truth, because I guess the idea is, well, look, we can say the natural numbers, you know, zero, one, two, three, and so on. And we think that that's meaningful and that it's describing a definite mathematical structure. But my view is that maybe we're making a mistake about that. I think we are. And, and that the main reason, the best argument for the sort of definiteness of arithmetic truth is coming from Dedekind's categoricity argument, that you know, the axioms of Dedekind arithmetic. So we have a zero and we have a successor, and he says zero is not a successor, and the successor function is one to one, and we have induction. So any set of numbers that contains zero in its close under successor has every number in it. And, and Dedekind proved, you know, 100 and whatever it was 30 years ago, um, that, uh, that all structures obeying his axioms are isomorphic. So it's categorical. It's a categorical theory, which is to say that there's a single mathematical structure underlying his axioms. And that's why we think that there's only one concept of natural numbers, because we have this categorical account of it. Okay, but... I say, wait a minute, because look, you were trying, you know, the, the person who's defending definiteness of arithmetic truth is, is trying to say, we know what we mean by definite arithmetic truth because we have this, this single arithmetic structure of the natural numbers that Dedekind proved is categorical. And, but that's telling me what it means to be finite on the basis of his second order induction axiom, which is basically appealing to this infinitary, this vague infinitary realm, how can it possibly be satisfactory to, to secure our definiteness of the concept of finite on the basis of this higher order concept of arbitrary set of natural number? It's, it seems to just fail on its face. And, and that's the, the worry that I have is that actually we're mistaken and there isn't a single definite concept of finite and it's going to splinter and there are going to be mathematical developments that continue the progression of say non-euclidean geometry is sort of splintering you know before uh, before the discovery of non-euclidean geometry the geometry was about the ones you know the one true geometry but then we realized wait a minute actually there's several concepts and they're not the same and they have different truths Okay, then with forcing, we had a similar kind of thing happen uh, in, in set theory, where leading to this indefiniteness of set theoretic truth in the higher realm, forcing can't change arithmetic truth. But I think that eventually we're going to realize that uh, there will be um, uh, methods for um, modifying arithmetic truth that will uh, be just as satisfactory as the, the forcing method is and, and will change our view about the definiteness of finite numbers. Well, before we, to use, to use your phrase, um, explore the space of set theoretic possibility and take it for granted, you mentioned uh, Kohler, uh, Peter Kohler, right. who is another student and colleague of Wooden, who you also mentioned, and they're both at Harvard. 
And I know that, at least according to Heim Gaifman, uh, Kohlner was at least one point a very devout sort of realist and singularist about the set theoretic universe. Isn't he still, and I'm wondering, you said at one point, but is he? That's what I was going to ask. Okay. I was going to ask if he still is and if, I mean, in the same way that you tried to be open-minded when discussing the liar paradox with Graham, if you try to be open-minded with regard to the singularist picture of the set theoretic universe and how they have argued against you. Right. So, so I, I, I don't know that I think of Kohlner as one of the um, uh, monists all the way up. I mean, it, that yeah. Is yeah, I think usually so. defended and I don't know that he's ever changed his mind about that. Yeah, I think so. Um, right. So one thing is that, of course, everybody agrees on all of the mathematics. And in that sense, there's nothing at stake mathematically in the philosophical debate. Right. So it doesn't matter if you're a pluralist or a monist or whatever, as far as, you know, whether your proof is correct or not. We all agree on the sort of validity of the proofs, which is different, a different situation, I guess, than if we were sort of changing the logic or something, then maybe we wouldn't agree on that. Because if one person is working in a different logic than another, then, um, you know, the, the validity of proofs, the validity judgments of the proofs would change, right? So in the set theoretic case, I mean, with set theoretic pluralism, um, what the debate is really about, I think, is a kind of proxy. The philosophical debate is about where we should go, which projects, which set theoretic projects should we find interesting or fruitful. And of course, if you are, have the monist point of view, then you're going to be led to find out what's really true in the one true universe. And so you're going to be led to try to formulate what, what does it mean? How will we recognize the truths of the one true universe? You know, by what, but by what criteria will we judge something is, is, you know, fit. And so this has led to, um, uh, Wooden's work on the um, ultimate L and, and, and this kind of thing is sort of candidates for uh, for this uh, you know, this definite truth and so on. Whereas if you're a pluralist about set theoretic truth, then naturally you would want to be kind of exploring the multiverse and so on, which is what my work on the modological forcing has done, and my work on set theoretic geology is about that kind of thing, and and the sort of potentialist analysis of different different potentialist accounts of set theory is also uh, can be seen uh, in, in that light. And so, so maybe the philosophical dispute doesn't actually have any consequence for, uh, I'm not sure, Graham, can you say something about how that yeah. kind of issue um, plays out in logical pluralism? Yeah, well, it's not to, let, let's, leave, let's leave logical pluralism aside and mathematical pluralism aside, because I agree with you that those are separate issues, okay? Um, and let me return to the philosophical. Let, let, me, let me return to the question that Robson raised about the philosophical problems with the view. Um, but let me prefix this by saying that um, I'm very sympathetic to your view about the set theoretic pluralism. Okay. Um, the more I thought about it, the more plausible it seems to me. E even to the is, is there a reason you use the word pluriverse instead of multiverse no. though? 
Okay. Um, okay. Just curious. Even to the extent of the arithmetic stuff. I mean, once the determinacy of the power operation goes, all bets are off, right? So, um, I, I'm, I'm still uncertain about some things, but I'm generally very, I, I'd like to be on board with the view completely, right? Um, so Robinson asked why people have problems with the view. Um, and these are philosophical problems. They're not mathematical problems, as you pointed out. Um, but there is a very standard objection, which um, you're well aware of, because we've talked about it before. And that is this. When you're investigating the multiverse of the pluriverse, or whatever you want to call it, where are you investigating it from? So it looks as though there's some kind of hyper-pluriverse, which uh, contains all yeah. the plurality. And you're working within that, okay? So that that's an objection that I'm sure you must have heard many times. Sure, sure, yeah. Um, now, I actually think that there are ways of getting around this objection. Um, we can expose that as well, but I suspect we're kind of on a similar page there. But there is one version of this problem which worries me, uh, and I'd be happy to be told it's confusion, but since I've got you here, let me put it to you uh, and see what you think. Okay, um, and you'll see why it's a, a facet of this problem, but it's a very specific facet, and it goes like this. Take some, some set theoretic member of the pluriverse, some structure, right? Take some set in it. Um, ask whether it's countable or not. Well, of course, from a pluriverse perspective, that doesn't make much sense, because, you know, this structure is going to be in two different structures. Let's call them M1 and M2. And according to M1, X is countable. According to M2, it isn't. Okay, so it looks like you solved the problem. Uh, it's The truth is relative to whichever these structures you're in. Okay, fine, as far as it goes. The trouble is that it don't stop there because M1 can be in different structures itself. Let's say M3 and M4. And according to M3, X will be countable in M1. And according to M4, X won't be countable with respect to M1. So you're going to get different answers depending on whether you think of M1 qua member of M3 or M4. Okay, fine. But of course, the problem iterates because you can go all the way up, whatever up means in this context. Um, and the worry is that. There's an, that you've traded in truth for truth in a structure, but now truth in a structure has become truth in a structure in a structure, which has become truth in a structure in a structure in a structure. And truth simplicator has just disappeared from the picture. So what the hell is one doing when one examines these things? I mean, that the notion of truth in a structure has now become unstable. And it's not clear what you're doing when you answer the question, is it true in the structure? I mean, that, that's the version that sort of worries me about this objection now. I see. So let me respond, because I, I, I definitely have heard this and, and thought about it a lot, actually. Um, and my view of the matter is that I just bite down hard on everything that you just said and say that that's the nature of the meta theory object theory distinction is that th there isn't just 
There aren't just two realms. Every set theoretic context, or maybe we call it a model of set theory or a universe or whatever, any realm in which you can do, say, set theory, uh, provides a meta-theoretic context for the objects that are available there. And it itself might be an object theoretic realm in a higher one and so on. And no, it's I, this I understand that view. But, yeah, but I'm worried that there's a vicious regress there. So oh, I see. if I ask you, this, there's this, this here set, let's call it X, is it countable? And you say, well, it is in this structure, but it is in that structure. That's fine. And I say, yeah, according to which structure? Because that answer is going to vary. No, I agree completely. I mean, you can make, for example, it's like Skolem's paradox on steroids or something. You can have three <laughs> models, M1, M2, M3. Absolutely. And they're contained. And, and you have an object in, in the bottom one. And it's thought to be finite in the smaller model. And it's thought to be uncountable in the middle one and countable in the top one. Okay. I mean, so even... So that you can make this happen. I'm aware of. But so when I say to you, is this set countable or not? Right. How can you give a coherent answer? Because well, you can say it is in this structure, but not in that structure. But that's not determinate, because that depends on which structure those structures are structures in. So there's there's a regress here. And the worry is that you've just the, the, the regress voids any answer you give of a, of determinacy. Well, I mean, it's sort of like the it's de re de dicto issue, isn't it? Because the I mean, why can't one just answer? Look, if I'm making a mathematical assertion, then this, these are always relative to the you know the, the current set theoretic universe, which is set by context and often not stated explicitly, and so on. If I say the reals are uncountable, set theoretic universe. I'm sorry, what? There isn't a unique set theoretic universe. No, no, I'm not saying a unique one, but any such mathematical statement is always to be understood as sort of relative to a perhaps unstated universe, right? If I but say the reals are uncountable... is self-relative. No, but, but we can use... For example, to say the reals are uncountable is a kind of de dicto assertion. I'm not talking about that set of reals which I recognize can be countable in the forcing extension in which you collapse that cardinal, but rather I'm understanding the reference de dicto to be the reals of the current set theoretic universe. And if CFC is true there, then we can do Cantor's argument. What's what's this, the current set theoretic universe? Well, whichever, whichever in any of them, you can go in there and take the reals that are available there and they will be uncountable in that one. But and that's just the de dicto reading of the statement, right? So I'm not making the statement about the object that you thought I was. I'm making the statement, you know, by reference to a certain description, the set of real numbers. And I don't, look, I'd, I'd be very happy to be proved wrong, okay? But I don't see that going de dicto helps because what holds de dicto in a model may well depend on which model that model is in. I agree, but it's harder to make instances of that. I mean. Just take the claim, the reals are uncountable. You know, we can prove this in CFC. It's going to be true in every set theoretic universe when it's interpreted as being being uncountable in that universe and that set of real numbers in that universe is uncountable in that universe means that that universe doesn't happen to have a collapsing function even if some other universe will, uh, will think differently. This other kind of situation that you're describing, which is fascinating, by the way, 
um, I think they're much harder to produce instances where the satisfaction relation itself is the thing that's changing. No, but there's a paper of yours where you do that. Yeah, I do it, but it's... That it's, was a gothamacking paper when I read that. Oh, good. I'm so glad you like it. What's yeah. the title? I think you're referring to my paper with Ruji Yang, right? Yeah. Uh, on the, um, it's on the archive, and it's called uh, Satisfaction is Not Absolute. Yeah. So the main theorem there is is that we produce a model, let's see, we, we, um, uh, we, we produce a model, two models of set theory that have exactly the same arithmetic structure. So they have the same natural numbers. I mean, in general, different models of set theory can have different omegas, different natural numbers. This is known because they can be non-standard or whatever, and this is completely understood. Um, but sometimes two models of set theory might happen to have the same omega, I mean, isomorphic or maybe literally identical. Um, so we produce two models of set theory that have the same omega, but they don't agree on which sentences are true in that structure. Yeah. And so we, there's a sentence that they both think it's a sentence. And one of the models thinks that this sentence sigma is true in the arithmetic structure, and the other one thinks that it's not true. So what the way I interpret this and what we were trying to do with this example was to was to criticize the move that if you're definite about the structure, that you should also be definite about truth in the structure. Because this situation is exactly a situation where the two models have the same structure, but they the truth is somehow indefinite. Yeah, and the, and the reason, if I understand it right, Joel, is this. How you characterize the domain is a second-order matter. But even setting that aside, how you define satisfaction in that domain is a second-order matter. And so once the comparison exactly. slides around all over the place, then the determinacy of satisfaction is going to disappear as well. Um, that had never occurred to me, so I read your paper. Um, oh, good. I'm glad. So um, I have a student now in Oxford who's working on paraconsistent logic and your, some of your ideas, but using this theorem, namely, because the theorem is this situation. It's not just two models. There's actually lots of models. And it's following from Krajewski's work, his uh, old work of Krajewski. Um, but the situation is that you can have a structure that has many, many different truth predicates for the same structure. So. So we can have a model of set theory and we can put a truth predicate on there. Different ones, many different ones, they disagree with one another. Yeah. And, and so it's about, it's about the situation where you have sort of multiple concepts of truth for the same realm of objects. Yeah. Go on, sorry. Yeah, so there's a little, there's a, the paraconsistent angle on it is that, well, look, we could, we could, from this situation, we can have a concept of truth, which just means it's true for at least one of them. Oh, okay. That's a paraconsistent concept of truth because it, because they disagree, there are some statements that are true for one of them, and the negation is also true oh, for one of them. So this is and, right to subvaluationism. Um, look, I didn't know about that. that. That's interesting. But just coming back to you know what my initial problem was, um, right? I don't think that moving from Day Ray to Day Dicto is going to help just because the Day Dicto stuff is going to be uh, subject to the same kind of indeterminacy all the way up. Right. Um, 
and, and this objection worries me. And worries me much more than where the hell are you coming from when you invert this to get the poor reverse. Okay. I mean, but it doesn't worry me because that's just how it is. That's how I look at it. I mean, well, no, but the, the problem is that, that the problem is is exactly that's how it is. Just because that, that that's how it is seems to render the supremacy of any answer to any question. No, no, because not it's not like anything goes, because we can still prove that, like, regardless, you know, certain things are going to be the case. And, uh, it, you know, that there is going to be some kind of common ground because, you know, we we have we can prove theorems from a theory. And if, you know, if the sort of pluralist conception uh, has has the property that they're agreeing on, on these axioms, then they're going to agree on the conclusions, too, because of the proof. And so it's not like, look, you can make any statement true or false if you just go somewhere else. There, you know, there's yeah. limits. But meanwhile, these weird situations that you're describing, which are I find extremely fascinating, that's what when I say that's how it is. That's what I mean is that yeah. So well, we have to have a larger concept of meta mathematics, and this and the the object theory meta theory distinction is just to Rude. It has to be encompassing of this enormous hierarchy that you're describing. I, I wasn't suggesting that anything goes. Um, the worry is not quite that. The worry okay. is that um, if all truth is relative to a, a structure, then the, that something is true in a structure is also relative to a structure. Sure, yeah. So there's no determined answer to the question of whether something is true. In a structure, in a structure, in a structure, in a structure, and, and and so the kind of determinacy of any answer to the question has just disappeared. Now, maybe you can construct some kind of absoluteness in the way you suggest, and say, well, yeah, but there's a kind of a nucleus of stuff which is absolute. Um, that that will be a good answer to the question if you can get it right. Um, uh, then, but I mean, we'd need to understand what constitutes this notion of absoluteness. Um, okay, maybe, maybe there's a good answer. Uh, look, now it's going to get technical. Maybe we'll, I'll, we'll talk about this by email. Um, <laughs> okay, yeah, I'd love to hear. Okay, well, well uh, uh, since we're, I guess for the moment, steering away from uh, technical material, maybe it's a good time to take a step back just a little bit. And so, Joel, you explained the mathematical motivations behind uh, how you came up with the, the multiverse view. But I'm also curious about whether ideas in sort of the, the philosophical zeitgeist uh, contributed to your idea. And Graham, in particular, I wonder how you feel about this and how it relates to your thinking about the multiverse. Because what I have in mind, I mean, particularly when you use phrases like exploring the space of set theoretic possibility, is whether you were at all influenced by something like Lewisian possible worlds. I mean, this idea that there is this multiplicity of spaces out there. Right. Not at all. Not at all for you, nope, Graham. Not at all. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't really either because when uh, you know the origin of these uh, views was, uh, I mean, I, I learned after after working on the concepts and producing the paper and so on, 
about you know people like uh, Balaguer has quite a lot of work on this plenitudinous Platonist idea, which has a very strong affinity for my kind of pluralism in the set theoretic universe, and and of course the the um, uh, Lewis's uh, um, huge spectrum of possible worlds and so on and. Um, it wasn't really the origin of, of my views, but of course there are very strong connections there that I subsequently uh, came to realize. Hmm. And then you mentioned another thing you mentioned earlier is that everyone agrees on the mathematics, like you, Polner, Graham, Wooden. You all agree on the mathematics, but then parenthetically, parenthetically, I mean, it's quite fascinating that mathematics, which, I mean, we think of as the objective natural science par excellence, can have problems that may be thought of as solved or not solved, uh, depending on philosophical considerations. So, I mean, the continuum problem was Hilbert's first problem, right? And a hundred and some years later, there's dispute over whether or not it's been solved. Exactly. I mean, sort of, it's part of the monist view that that it, CH is an open question. Um, but I've argued explicitly that we should think of it as as a settled question because we understand very deeply uh, what's going on with it. We we know, of course, we know it's independent. And we know that given any set theoretic universe, you can make a Poisson extension where you achieve either value, either true or false, you know, there's two Poisson extensions, realizing those possibilities. And, and furthermore, we understand very deeply how we can have not CH with various other kinds of statements about, say, cardinal characteristics, the bounding number and the dominating number and all those uh, technical things that we can, we, we understand in a quite deep way what's going on with CH in the multiverse. And, and that's the answer to the CH question. To my way of thinking, that is the answer. And we should think of it as a settled question. So you're right, there isn't agreement about this because a lot of people talk about the continuum hypothesis as an open question that we're still trying to figure out the answer to. And, and that's the point, I guess, where we don't agree because I, I think that's not a correct way of understanding what's going on. Yeah, let, let me just say that whenever someone says we, my next question is always, who's the we? <laughs> uh, and I'm, I'm not going to say what you think I'm going to say. Okay. Um, but when you say we, you talk about, sort of generally speaking, contemporary mathematicians. And that's fine. Um, but of course, mathematics has been changing for two and a half thousand years, just in the West, let alone the rest of the world. Um, and uh, I've absolutely no doubt it's going to continue to change. And sometimes as mathematics changes, we overturn some accepted things, and that, that happens too. Um, of course, it's hard to predict what's going to happen. It's, it's, it's impossible, in fact. But I would be gobsmacked if mathematics in the year 3000 were anything like the mathematics in the year 2000, any more than mathematics in the year 2000 is like mathematics in the year 1000. Um, I can agree with all of that. Yeah. So that um, I, I think all these views about what we know and what we don't know, even in, even in mathematics, are going to have to be subject to proviso. Well, that's how it seems to us at the moment. And maybe it will remain. Maybe it won't. But I, I do think that, that that is worth bearing in mind. The we in 
the community of mathematicians in 3000, and they had a very different view from the we of the mathematicians in 2000. I think. I, that seems almost perfectly right. I think that's that's got to be right. So in light of your view, though, of the continuum hypothesis or the continuum problem being settled, how do you view sort of Wooden's and Kohlner's program, which I view as uh, something like a continuation of Gödel's program, of the search for new axioms? Do you, so if the continuum hypothesis is um, settled, is it just you just view them as exploring deeper into one realm of the the multiverse and exploring the continuum hypothesis's behavior there? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, of course, the the even the philosophical views aren't incompatible, right? From it, from the pluralist point of view, the monist project is trying to find the what which one is v, right? And 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 to to articulate okay. the criteria by which we would recognize it or judge it and so on to, to be the right answer. And because it's, not, of course, it's not a math, it's not a mathematical problem, right, to find out which way it goes. We know it's independent. We can't settle it. And even with large cardinals, we know we can't settle it because of the Levi-Solovey theorem. And so, so the, the continuum problem is, is, is much harder to find a reason for why we would settle it one way. I mean, the, the kind of dream solution, what I've called the dream solution would be that we would find a principle that everyone agreed expressed something fundamental about the concept of set and which also happened to settle this CH question, right? So the missing axiom in a sense, this is the dream solution. This is what this is what Gödel wanted with large cardinals, but he wasn't able to have it because of the Levi-Solovey theorem. Large cardinals can't settle CH either way. Um, and but maybe there's some other missing principle. It's something like what happened, for example, with replacement. When Zermelo first introduced his axioms of set theory, he didn't have the replacement axiom. It wasn't on the list. But as soon as Frankel mentioned it, basically, look, if you have for each number n, you can define a set a sub n, and you want to form the set of all, you know, the set that has a0, a1, a2, and so on, that countable set. And without replacement, it might not be a set. And, and so everyone recognized that, look, replacement is expressing something that we already thought was true about sets, and that's why it was accepted so readily onto the list to, to make ZFC, right? And, and so maybe we would find an axiom like that, that would also settle CH. That's what, that's the hope, the dream. But I've argued that this dream solution is impossible now because if you give me some axiom and initially maybe it looks really great and natural and so on, but then you prove that it implies not CH, then it's immediately contradicting my experience in these not ch worlds it's like you're saying only brooklyn exists right but i know about manhattan and queens and, and i know how it could be that ch holds and i know how it could be that ch fails so any statement that provably you know implies one of those uh, i know is not necessarily true of the concept of set because i i know there's these perfectly set theoretic 
set theoretically acceptable realms in which ch is true and in which ch is false other ones and and so i can't accept the new axiom as as uh, manifestly true for sets because of that experience I don't know how convincing that is, but this is my argument against the dream solution. I think as a phenomenon, it won't happen ever. I mean, there was an attempt, Freiling's axiom. I don't know if you know Freiling's axiom of symmetry. Chris Freiling considered the statement. Okay, it, it goes like this. We attach to every real number a countable set of real numbers. Okay, a function maps reals to countable sets. Suppose we have such a function. And now Chris Freiling says, throw two darts at the real line. Okay, so the first one lands at X and the second one lands at Y. Now, if once X is there, then the set attached to X is some countable set. So almost surely Y, the other dart, isn't, isn't hitting that set. So almost surely Y is not in the set F of X. But then by symmetry, because it doesn't matter which one I think of as the first one, I could have looked at y first, then almost surely x is not in f of y. So the, the axiom says, for any function f from reals to countable sets of reals, there are at least two points x and y, so that neither of them is in the set attached to the other one. Okay? And so he gives this philosophical argument for why we should think it's true involving these darts. So, okay, so Freiling proposed this axiom, which he argued for by thinking about darts, throwing darts at the real line. And then he proved, well, actually it was proved earlier um, by Sierpinski, I think it was, uh, that this principle implies not CH. It's equivalent to not CH. And so, okay, so what's the response? Because it's an instance of the dream solution. If you like his, his axiom, and then you discover it's equivalent to not CH, then that's a reason to think not CH, maybe. But the response of the theoretic community was almost universal rejection of his argument. And to say, look, the argument is naive, it's, it's based on, on um, uh, misguided conceptions of measure and the Fubini theorem and so on. And, and so they gave these, uh, Basically, it completely conforms with my prediction about how the dream solution candidates will be handled, which is that once we know that the statement implies the, the axiom or the negation of the axiom, then we will reject the naturality of the statement uh, because of this deep familiarity with the way things that can go wrong. So... I'd like to turn now to Graham's conception of the multiverse. So I know that a couple of years ago, you were working on a text called Ex Uno Plures from One Many, but I couldn't find it when I was uh, preparing for this. So one, I guess, what is the status of that work? And maybe you could say, I guess, what, what it is. That seems to be a natural question. But my understanding, at least from what I recall, since I didn't have it in front of me, was that your conception of the multiverse differs, I mean, sort of drastically from Joel's in the sense that Joel's revolves more around axioms, whereas yours revolves more around different logics. 
Okay, so um, the first question first. I sent the manuscript off to CUP nine months ago, uh, and um, I'm still waiting for referees' reports. Okay. There is action on that front slowly, but um, when I get the referees' reports, it's going to require some polishing. And now, so it'll be yeah. a book? Um, oh, awesome. And now I don't know when I'm going to find time to do it. So I'm not going to predict when it's going to come out. Okay. okay. Um, well, I, I love the name. Thank you. Um, so um, the thought is this, uh, and it touches on what we talked about a little bit earlier on. There are mathematical structures which have an internal logic of intuitionistic logic. There are mathematical structures which have an internal logic of a paraconsistent logic. And I kind of suspect that for any interesting logic, you're going to be able to say something similar. Right. And uninteresting logics, I would guess. Well, if they're uninteresting logics, they're unlikely to be the basis of interesting mathematical theories. But who knows? Okay. Um, <laughs> and the sort of prime thought of mathematical pluralism is that mathematical interest does not is not restricted to any one particular logic. These all these structures have have interest in, are interesting mathematically, and you can investigate all of them. You probably won't be interested in all of them, but that doesn't mean there aren't they are all equally legitimate. Um, and so uh, the view of mathematical pluralism is there's all these mathematical theories or structures based on different logics, and in some sense they're all equally good. Qua pure mathematics. And in terms of applied mathematics, it's a different story, but qua pure mathematics. Um, and uh, I've never been quite sure what Joel's view is on this, but uh, from what he said earlier, and well, what you said earlier, Joel, um, you're not unsympathetic with this view. That's the sense that I got, but I was wondering, Joel, if, I mean, in your set theoretic multiverse there is a number of realms for intuitionistic um, logic based set theories is that the case i mean of course uh, one can have a conception of set theoretic pluralism which is accommodating the intuitionistic uh, set theory or even pair consistent set theory and i would view that as sort of you know partaking of the similar ideas um to to, to you know uh, to what I had in mind, but um, I mean, as I said earlier, I I myself don't happen to look at those very much, although I've done a little bit of work. I mean, as Graham knows, I uh, had an, an approach to paraconsistent set theory based on the sort of Boolean valued model approach, but using paraconsistent algebras instead of Boolean algebras. Um, and, and this gives a very robust, what I view as a very robust collection of set theoretic conceptions that would have paraconsistent logic happening in them. After I did that, uh, Benedict Lover wrote this really great paper. He had a co-author whose name is escaping me now, um, in which he did it uh, much better than me uh, uh, and developed this sort of theory of these structures quite a lot and, and analyzed exactly what you need in the algebra, in the paraconsistent algebra in order to achieve certain things. Um, in the resulting set theoretic model. 
Um, but I had the sense at the time, it was at this meeting in Connecticut, if you recall, Graham, and you were there and JCPO was there and uh, um, some, some of the other logical pluralists were there, I think. And um, But there was a view that, that those kind of models weren't really what was wanted from paraconsistent set theory. At least that was my sense of the reaction because part of the view was to get was specifically aimed at getting models of paraconsistent set theory in which the general comprehension principle comes out true and also false. I mean, necessarily it would also be false, but you wanted it, it also to be true. And none of these models were like that because the general comprehension principle was just false and not true at all. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, I mean, I guess I view all of that as sort of part of set theory, the pluralism, even if it isn't the main part that I was looking for. Well, with respect to what you say and, and that particular meeting, which was very fruitful, and your suggestion was particularly fruitful, I thought. Um, the situation is this, um, since the kind of 70s, uh, the thought is that the naive theory of truth and the naive theory of sets um, could and should be formulated with a paraconsistent logic. I mean, this takes us back to, you know, the solutions to the liar paradox and so on. And it must be said that as far as the theory of truth goes, um, that's pretty well tied down now. We know what a paraconsistent theory of truth is like. We know its properties and so on. Um, a paraconsistent theory of sets has turned out to be a much more problematic beast. Um, and for a long time, it wasn't even clear that you could prove standard results of um, ordinal theory, cardinal theory, in, in such a theory. Um, and presumably, any decent paraconsistent set theory should do that. Um, in, in that way, I mean, the set theory differs from the truth theory because the naive theory of truth doesn't have to answer too much whereas the naive theory of sets has to answer to a lot. So the problem of finding um, proofs of the standard results of transfinite arithmetic was solved by Zach Weber about 10 years ago. Um, and it was a very nice solution. Before, people who attacked the problem, such as me, had been trying to reconstruct the old proofs. But what that turns out to be pretty helpless. Um, and so what Zach did was construct very different proofs, which use the properties of inconsistent sets, essentially. Um, okay, so that, that was really nice work, but it doesn't really solve everything because it showed that you can use paraconsistent set theory to um, do transfinite arithmetic, that's fine. But of course, we use set theory to do a lot of other things. We do use it for model theory, for example. And it still isn't clear whether you can get a paraconsistent set theory which will do that. That's still an open question. Um, now, when I talk about paraconsistent set theory in this context, there is an assumption I've been making, which is that you formulate your paraconsistent set theory with a detachable conditional, usually a, a, a conditional for which most exponents works. Um, probably irrelevant conditional. That's where most of the work has been done. Um, 
And that's the question I've just been talking about. But because it seemed rather grim, a grim possibility, I thought about a rather different way of approaching things uh, 20 years ago, which is this. Um, you um, don't talk about a monoverse. Um, you talk essentially about um, a pluriverse. So it, it sort of links with Joel's view here. Um, and there are lots of paraconsistent pluriverses. Um, you can think of these as models. It won't do any harm for a moment. Um, some of these are classical. Some of these are non-classical. Um, uh, and some of them uh, are going to satisfy naive comprehension, at least in the form of a material biconditional. Some of them are going to have, uh, some are going to verify that and all the theorems of ZF. That's kind of surprising. So there are some interesting model theoretic constructions. Some of these were discussed in the, in the stores meeting, which allow you to construct members of the pluriverse that are like that. So the thought is, hey, um, what we're doing when we're doing paraconsistent set theory, uh, on naive set theory rather, is working in, in these models, which model ZF, um, or the theorems of ZF, um, and also naive comprehension. Um, and I guess unless and until uh, a version of paraconsistent set theory with a robust conditional turns up, that's what I kind of like. So it's a bit complicated, but that is, in as far as I can summarize it in a nutshell, is it. Graham, I'm just curious, where does the UNO come from in the title? Um, where does it come from? Yeah. Uh, the American, or what does it correspond the American, to? Uh, American, uh, what do you call it? Um, no, no, no. I mean, pluribus unum. No, but I mean, what does it, why is that the title of your book? Oh, because it bends the American, um, what do you call these things? It's not. Motto? It has more status than that, right? It's the official slogan of the United States. A pluribus mm. unum. Okay. Yeah. Um, but the first chapter of that book explains how studies in foundation have actually led us, which is based on some kind of mathematical monism. Traditionally, that's been the correct view. Um, but foundational studies have led us to this plurality. Um, so, no plurals from one hmm. in foundational studies, we got to a many. Is that what you're asking? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm asking. Sorry. Okay, and now I, I'd i like to talk a bit about, I mean, some philosophers, mathematics, uh, Heim, for one, really doesn't think that there's any place for talking about metaphysics at all in talking about the philosophy of math. But I think the questions are still really important and because they're natural questions to ask. And I also wonder if you two have different metaphysical conceptions of what the multiverse view amounts to. And one reason why I have this guess or hunch is that, Joel, in, in the paper in the set theoretic multiverse, 
you write, uh, I'll quote you, the multiverse view is one of higher order realism, Platonism about universes, and I defend it as a realist position asserting, and this is the key phrase here, actual existence of the alternative set theoretic universes into which our mathematical tools have allowed us to glimpse. And I mean, the reason that I'm expecting there to be some divergence on your views here is that Graham has said that mathematical objects do not actually exist. They're non-existent objects. Uh, He's been very clear on this. So it might just be a verbal issue here, but I wonder if there's something deeper than that. And uh, yeah. Do you want to go first, Graham? Um, I don't mind, Joel. <laughs> Do you want to go first? <laughs> I'm happy either way. Yeah, whatever you want. All right. So, I mean, uh, a question I would ask you, uh, Robinson, uh, is what do you mean by metaphysics to, to begin with? Sure. I, I suppose I have ontology in mind, just what exists, what it means to exist, how things exist. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you're... By ontology, you mean what exists, and you don't necessarily mean what objects are there. These don't mean the same thing. Yeah, I know that you've stressed that, but maybe I mean both both aspects of the question. Well, look, there's a prime question here about what you mean by existence, right? Um, and you can use the word in different ways, of course. But there's an obvious sense in which Sherlock Holmes does not exist. Okay. Whatever that sense of existence is, I think that some things don't exist. Now, um, there is a question that actually goes back a long way in philosophy as to whether mathematical, pure mathematical structures exist or not. Um, and People, especially under the influence of Quine, have assumed that anything that you can quantify over exists. Um, I don't subscribe to that view. I think that some things you can quantify over don't exist, such as Sherlock Holmes. Um, Even if you accept that distinction, that some things don't exist, there's still a second question of whether you take pure mathematical entities to exist or to be non-existent objects. This ain't going to make any iota of difference to the mathematics, right? It's a philosophical spin you put on the subject matter you're investigating. But for what it's worth, I'm inclined to think of existence in the sense that I'm talking about as being in the causal domain, being in space and time, and being able to enter into causal chains, that kind of thing. Um, And in that sense, I take abstract mathematics mathematical objects to be non-existent objects. Um, I think Joel normally expresses himself in terms of they will exist, but I don't know whether it's because he has a line on existence or whether he just takes over the standard you know, way of expressing himself in, in mathematics philosophy. But, okay, over to you, Joel, you can say. Right, so I have, uh, I think we, we have a, Maybe a big disagreement here. Um, uh, uh, right, my views on abstract existence are, are complicated, but let me relate a story. Last, a few weeks ago here at Notre Dame, we had 
a philosophy lunch and the discussion proceeded with um, uh, somebody talking about the way they talk about Santa Claus to their children and so on is you know based on the sort of Santa Claus as a fictional character. So they answer all questions with the idea of answering questions about Santa Claus um, based on the story that's surrounding him. And then someone else brought up, well, suppose we want to make assertions about not Santa Claus, but Santa Bear, who, according to the person who brought this up, uh, isn't even a fictional character. Um, and so it doesn't even exist you know, on the, on the grounds of fictionalism. Um, and I immediately objected and said, look, the, the abstract existence, the status of existence of Santa Bear and Santa Claus is really not that different at all. And furthermore, Beethoven's 10th symphony and his 27th symphony, and what about the plays of Shakespeare, you know, like the 100th play after Hamlet and so on, which of course wasn't actually written, but it might have been. And the sort of status of that play, including the names of its characters and the stage directions and so on, have a kind of existence. Uh, I mean, I, I don't see any sense in which those, the play that we might imagine that he wrote, would, would exist in any lesser sense than the play of Hamlet itself as an abstract object or Santa Bear and Santa Claus and so on. And this is this view is so I was I was sort of criticized by um, Sam Newlands who said, look, I didn't know that you had such he accused me of having radical metaphysical views about this kind of existence. <laughs> but I think of it as kind of ordinary. I mean, and and furthermore, though, I want to make the main point, which is that, in my view, before you do that, so, let me just say right? that. Before you do that, let me just say that sure. we're on the same page here. I agree with you. Okay, great. So the 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 next point, though, I think is where we're going to maybe disagree, um, which is that. Um, <clears throat> People often talk about, you know, existence in space and time and so on and physical existence in a manner that suggests that that's the one that we really understand, but abstract existence is the problematic one. And my view is that this is exactly backwards, that actually physical existence is the one that's deeply mysterious. I mean, the more physics we learn, the more, the more strange physical objects are they you know started out as hard balls or something or infinitely divisible things for the Greeks or something but then and now what 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 are they well even things like this cup right are you know clouds of electrons and wave functions and so on and it's just deeply mysterious what it means to physically exist in fact I'm not even sure actually one can give any kind of sensible account of what it means to say that a particular thing exists physically. I mean, in reality, that it physically exists. I mean, I have a lot of experience. Of course, I can pound on the table and, and, and you know, I exist in space and time and I've interacted with many, many things, but that's not really an explanation of what it means to exist in space and time. And I don't think that I can't imagine what an explanation of the meaning of that would even be like, because um, it's such a kind of primitive, it's a, it's a kind of knowledge situation that we have only this kind of extremely primitive course access to. Whereas the existence of the empty set is something that we can seem to say something about what it means for such a thing to exist. So we can talk about 
you know, instances of contradictory properties, and it's the set of instances of contradictory, you know, I mean, you can, of course, argue with me about how successful such an explanation might be, but the point I'm trying to make is that that explanation is just far more thorough in giving an account of what it would mean to say that the empty set exists than any kind of corresponding assertion or explanation of what it means to say that this cup is a physical object. Um, and, and so that's why I think uh, this, this sort of ordinary contrast between physical existence, which is supposedly easy and well understood, versus abstract existence, which is problematic, is just totally backwards, I think. Um, and, and, and so I'm totally willing to have, you know, my ontology of or metaphysics of abstract objects is quite rich. As, I mean, my understanding of the nature of it is extremely rich. And so, yeah, I, I wasn't, my view is not coming from the thought that existence in space and time is unproblematic. Um, I mean, you can use the word exist and mean anything you like. You know, it's Humpty Dumpty, so there's a nice knockdown argument for you. Um, all I want to know is, well, what do you mean? And I've told you what I mean. Um, um, you tell me what you mean, and we can, if it's different, we can agree to differ about that. Um, but there is some sense in which we can both agree that Charlotte Holmes doesn't exist. Thank God. Now, Look, everybody's an atheist, right? About some. Well, God. Joel can't say that he's at Notre Dame now. Well, look, even the, even the good bishops are not today more atheists about some gods. None of them believes in um, Brahman, for example. Okay, so they might believe that some one particular god exists, but they all think that others don't. All right, so everybody's an atheist about some gods, right? And whatever sense that those gods don't exist in, that's the sense of existence I want to talk about, okay? And I don't see any particular reason to suppose that abstract mathematical objects exist in that sense. Hmm. Now, this is a, a question that I think you don't, you don't have to be philosophically initiated into mathematical philosophy to ask. It's a question that I, I mean, I was curious about even in high school, and perhaps you guys will think it's silly a silly question. Uh, but just as, uh, Graham, you disambiguated my question about metaphysics, I'm sure you two can disambiguate mm. this question. But I would just uh, like to ask this classic question. Whether you think of mathematics as created or discovered because on on joel's case i mean with his rich ontology of abstract objects i have to assume that he thinks mathematics is discovered or at least we discover properties of the set theoretic multiverse i mean our tools are things that humans do so i don't know if it might be a category mistake to say that it's in, invented or discovered but then you on the other hand Graham likened you already brought in the analogy of Sherlock Holmes and Sherlock Holmes is is as a non-existent object is I think you would like to say that he's created uh and if no. oh so, so you don't okay um, so yeah I would love to hear how you two think about this question well look if you think that some things don't exist there are two lines you can run a realist line or an anti-realist line. 
and you can think that um, abstract objects um, are there to be quantified over, so to speak, um, or what abstract objects are to be quantified over depends on the activity of sentient creatures. In that sense, you're an anti-realist. And a lot of people are anti-realist about things like Sherlock Holmes and so on. That's one possible view. Another possible view is to be a realist about them. They're there just as much as any other kind of object. Um, and in that sense, when Conan Doyle wrote Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes stories, he wasn't creating anything in the sense of bringing the object there in whatever sense of there is. Rather, he was just singling out one of these objects and giving them a name. Now, I think you can tell the story either way, but actually I'm more sympathetic towards the realist view for reasons we can go into if you like. Hmm. But yeah, I, I, or go ahead, Joel. So, so let me respond to what you said about Matthew. Um, I mean, the question is, is mathematics discovered or um, invented? And my reaction to this question is, um, uh, is of course, mathematics isn't so homogeneous to have one answer to this question. I mean, it happens, you know, if one is doing mathematics, then very often it has the feeling of discovery. You know, if you're looking at some well-established field of mathematics, you know, you're doing number theory and you're doing some finite combinatorics and you're trying to figure out some number theoretic conjecture, then this is the kind of situation where it has the flavor of discovery, you know, because you think that the mathematical structure you're investigating was already defined and well-studied by other people and it's part of the community and you're realizing something is true there. And so this is an instance of discovery. But in other cases, in mathematical practice, you're inventing new concepts that new properties that hadn't ever been expressed before and using them to construct new mathematical structures that hadn't ever yet been defined yet. And you're using them and, and, and making statements about them and so on. And this always, almost always has the feeling of invention. Um, because everything about it is new and you're exploring and it, it's it's like what it you know what it's like to encounter something totally new of your own invention and so so I think both of these kind of experiences are quite commonly occurring in mathematics and therefore I think some mathematics has the character of discovery and some mathematics has the character of invention now but to respond to your your sort of suggestion that I'm, I should be committed to discovery only because these universes already existed and so on. And and then, yeah, I don't know if I, because I, I, I like this sort of inhomogeneous way of talking about it much better, but there's something appealing about what you said, um, except I think, look, if I invent a new mathematical thing, you know, it's a it's a foobar and it's got two schlim schlimgongs on it or whatever. Chitty chitty bang bangs. Chitty chitty bang bangs, right. So I've been looking at the 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 Google uh, stack bang plex hierarchy and someone suggested that the word chitty should be in there because I'm looking at which is bigger, a Google Plex bang or a Google Bang Plex Plex or whatever. And so I invented the chitty. And so a Google chitty means Google to the Google. And so now 
I can form these big numbers called Google Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. And okay, so this is a kind of invention situation, although it's really just a mathematical operation which already was existing. So maybe it's not a great example, but if I invent some new mathematical concept and then I study it, then that's exactly the kind of situation where math has the character of invention. But arguably the structure, you know, in the platonic realm was there all along in the same way that Beethoven's 10th symphony was there all along, even though he hadn't ever written it yet um, or forever. And, and, and so, uh, okay, if you, if you really force me, I'll say it already existed, but still it has the character of invention rather than discovery. Well, I mean, what it sounds like to me is that you're, willing or happy to point out that mathematics has a very creative and inventive element to the practice. But when I hear you say that a mathematician constructs a mathematical structure that hasn't been defined yet, that seems to me to go completely against the sort of ontological picture that you suggested earlier, where you have this very rich uh, ontology of abstract objects and the set theoretic multiverse is already out there. So I don't think you can have it both ways that a mathematician yeah. constructs a mathematical structure, but that structure is already there. And there seems to be a, a, a tension here. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, mm, yeah, I have to think more about it. I guess. <laughs> mm. From the personal experience point of view, definitely both situations happen okay so what is the status of these objects when you invent a new mathematical structure that no one has invented before then is it more properly said to be a discovery right that's that's really the heart of the matter mm -hmm. i'm not going to give an answer <laughs> <laughs> no that's fine graham you mentioned earlier just sort of offhandedly that mathematics has been changing for two and a half thousand years and I wonder if the two of you still think, however, that mathematics is fundamentally the same discipline as it was 2,500 years ago, even though right now, I mean, Graham, um, Joel, Graham, you're, we're talking about mathematical objects as sets, whereas they thought of mathematical objects uh, or numbers, like they represented them as segments. And we have completely different tools mathematical culture is completely different uh, our notions of rigor and proof are completely different are they still the same discipline or is this again just uh maybe a, an issue of language or, or categorization language. i mean the same question arises to any intellectual endeavor right they all change over time um what makes an endeavor the same thing over time you know you can ask the same about any kind of thing um Obviously, some kind of continuity is involved, and the lines of continuity are very clear uh, in mathematics. Um, well, though, not always, because uh, mathematics crosses continents and epochs, and then the, then the causal connections become less clear. But, you know, set that aside, generally speaking, there are fairly clear lines of continuity. And um, that's, you know, it's natural to give an identity of those as providing the identity conditions over time. But it, it's conventional in a certain sense. I mean, was, did, didn't science come into existence at the scientific revolution? 
or before. There are elements of continuity, elements of distinct change. Um, I think you could say, yes, it was the same before and after. It was science, natural science, or it was different. I, and I really think that's just a matter of how you, uh, that, that's a conventional matter. And Joel, what do you, yeah. Yeah, let me mention, so uh, last week, in, I'm teaching a course on infinity this semester for undergraduates, it's like first and second year students, and we're doing you know, all about infinity. And I gave a lecture on Archimedes' method of exhaustion, you know, where he calculates the area of a parabolic segment by filling it with triangles and analyzing the total area and exhausting it. And that work was published in the third century BC, you know, two millennia ago. And, and it's just amazing to me that there is this kind of continuity. Uh, and we've been studying that argument for 2000 years, more than 2000 years. And, and isn't that incredible? I mean, I think of mathematics as maybe more so than any other subject I mean, but philosophy is is perhaps a, a, a close competitor, but mathematics has spanned human cultures in a, in a way that's sort of invariant between them. It's not perfectly invariant, and if Archimedes was here now, maybe he wouldn't even understand exactly our account of what he was doing, but I think... I mean, if one could get over the language barrier, then I think actually we, we could have a meaningful conversation with him about his argument and he's, there's this infinite sum involved and his treatment of it is, is, is very much grounded in potentialist conceptions of infinity rather than actualist, but we would still be able to talk about his argument in a way I think that would be meaningful on both sides. And I just find that incredible, that situation where a mathematical idea has been transmitted from culture to culture to culture, you know, continent to continent, and, and is now appreciated and understood by people all over the world. And, and this happens again and again and again in mathematics. It's sort of one worldwide subject of mathematics, almost, okay, not perfectly, but basically almost fully. And, and and it's just incredible to me that that's true and that that's possible even. And I think uh, it's much less true in many, many other subjects, you know, uh, intellectual subjects included, or even scientific practice, it's less true than it is in mathematics, I think. And, and in sort of uh, um, in things like music and so on, obviously it's completely different and not at all true. And, and uh, I just find it incredible that it was possible for us to communicate about these mathematical ideas with people that lived essentially 2000 years ago via their writings and in people who live in totally different cultural situations. And it's amazing and I am, um, appreciate it very much. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree, but I mean, I also think that if you brought Socrates back from the dead, uh, gave him a glass of wine and sat him in a session of the APA, assuming that he could speak American, um, he'd have a great time. <laughs> All right. Well, you two, uh, this has been absolutely terrific. It's been an honor to have both of you on. I think this is a, a real high point of the budding Robinsons 
podcast universe, uh, maybe even multiverse. Uh, so thank, <laughs> thanks so much for doing this with me. Thanks, Robinson. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. And nice to see you again, Grant. Hold on, Geeslings. Before you go, please uh, like, subscribe, follow if you haven't already. Smash all those buttons. And also, if you haven't followed me on uh, Twitter at Robinson Earhart, or if you're not joining me every morning as I eat my pint of ice cream on Twitch at Robinson Earhart on Robinson East, please do so.